One of the most overused cliches of all time is the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over while expecting a different result. People get stuck in self-destructive patterns or malicious behaviors. Sometimes people keep pressing more deeply into their patterns. And when they do this, they leave destruction all around them, including themselves. Sometimes people want to change. Uh, So they'll go to therapy, take medications, develop certain self-disciplines, make radical life changes. And this may result in some form of improvement. But what we want to talk about this morning, it's really kind of our regular discussion, is that God is not in the business of rehab. God is not rehabilitating our old self. God gives people new life. God gives people a distinctively new life. We become new creations in Christ Jesus. Paul has already squashed the idea of remaining stuck or pressing more deeply into our sin. We see that in verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he's already squashed the idea of pressing deeply into our sinfulness. Paul will proceed now to explain why and how a continued lifestyle of sin cannot happen in God's people. Let's take a look at the entirety. Well, actually, most of this paragraph, verses 1-11. through Romans chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 again, but this time we're going to read all the way to verse 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died. He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, you'll notice that our slide says a new identity, a new life, part uno. (laughs) Part one. 
That means we're going to be on this a little bit, at least for next week as well. There's a lot to cover. Um, there's a lot in this text. We're not in a hurry. We're not in a hurry to press through Romans chapter 6. This is the life of a new creation. This is doctrine 101 for you and I to understand what the Christian life is like. We've already talked about the fact that the dominion of sin has been broken. We've already talked about the fact that we have died with Christ. This morning our emphasis will lead us toward the fact that we've been made alive in Christ. Now as he answers the question about whether we should continue in sin, he answers by giving us some whys. Well, why is it that we shouldn't? First of all, we have died to sin. Secondly, we have been given new life. Well, how has this happened? We have been baptized into Christ Jesus that's what it tells us in verses 3 through 5. Again, we're going to read it. Do you not know that all of us, key words, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like His. Some are convinced that this passage is referencing water baptism. And some are convinced that this passage is referencing spirit baptism. So we're going to talk for a few minutes about the possibilities. Think. Think. You already have your opinion. Think. Don't just let your opinion rule the day. Think. Let's understand. Let's try to understand. There are some good reasons that one would feel strongly that this passage refers to water baptism. Listen the entire time, please. Here's one reason that is a good reason to think this. Paul, in this passage, is referring to the death, burial, and resurrection. And guess what the imagery of baptism represents? The death, burial, and resurrection. This is why we immerse people in water. We take them, they, they make their proclamation of faith. I say, in obedience to the Lord's command, and, in, um, and because of your profession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the concept is, buried with Him in baptism, raised in newness of life. So the imagery points toward Water baptism. So there's a, there's a reason for possibly looking at this as water baptism. In other places, here's a second concept, second reason that one would feel strongly that this is referring to water baptism. In other places, when baptism or baptized is used to refer to something other than water baptism, the writer uses a description of the type of baptism he is referencing. In other words, baptized in the Spirit. Remember, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he who comes after me, he'll baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. So he's giving a descriptors. John Stott is one of those who feels strongly that this passage refers to water baptism. Let's listen to hear what he has to say. Baptism means water baptism unless in the context it is stated to the contrary. 
It is true that the New Testament speaks of other kinds of baptism. For example, a baptism with fire and a baptism with the Spirit. But it is safe to say that whenever the term, terms baptism and being baptized occur, without mention of the element in which the baptism takes place, the reference is to water baptism. That's his statement, not mine. Douglas Moo and Thomas Schreiner, good theologians, good scholars, good commentators, both agree with his assessment, as does William Hendrickson. On the other hand, so there's, that was my one, one presentation, this referencing water baptism. On the other hand, there are some, <clears throat> like me and uh, others in this room, that, that believe strongly that this passage is speaking about spirit baptism. And we have some good reasons why we believe that this passage is speaking about spirit baptism. First of all, water baptism does not have the power to save us. Does not produce salvation. Secondly, water baptism does not have the power to spiritually unite a person, a believer, with Jesus Christ. Water baptism can't do that. Thirdly, the main idea of this section is union with Jesus Christ. Union with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Verse 4. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. Verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. Verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. What does it say? In Christ Jesus. So this section, he's talking about union with Christ. Jesus spoke to His disciples about union with Himself in John chapter 14 without any reference to baptism whatsoever. In fact, what he does do is he associates union with Christ with the Spirit's presence within them. You'll see that in John 14, verses 15 through 20. Okay, So we've got three reasons so far. We believe that this is a reference to spirit baptism. Water baptism does not have the power to produce salvation Water baptism does not have the power to spiritually unite a believer with Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the main idea of this section is union with Christ Jesus, and it's not produced by baptism. Fourthly, it is only genuine conversion that results in the spiritual realities that Paul details in these verses. A person who is not genuinely saved can be baptized with water And certainly, these benefits are not involved. Fifthly, fifthly, Romans 6.3 says, all, very important word, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. All of us. Everyone who is born again is regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? The Bible says in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, He, God, has saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. That's to give life. That's being born again. Regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So everyone who was born again has been united together with Christ. All of us, he says in verse 3. All right? Everyone who is born again is baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. We're in Romans. Take a right to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about God, and the Trinity is involved in the distribution of spiritual gifts, but specifically the Spirit of God is involved in that process. As he finishes that short section on discussing the specific elements of spiritual giftedness, it says now in verses 12 and 13, something that the Spirit also does. The Spirit does this in verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So he's talking about all of us being part of the body of Christ. Can we see that very clearly in verse 12? Every believer is part of the body of Christ. Verse 13. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into what? One body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of the one Spirit. So the Spirit baptizes us, places us into the body of Christ. Uh, Well, who is the representative head of the body of Christ? Jesus Christ Himself is the head of the body. We're being baptized into Christ. This is the concept that Paul's speaking of here in 1 Corinthians 12. So now, let's, let's try to Try to sum up this little, little uh, discussion on water baptism, spirit baptism. If a person feels strongly that Romans chapter 6 refers to water baptism, and there is room for that possibility, they must see water baptism as representative of genuine conversion and representative of initiation into the body of Christ. And that is exactly the way that Thomas Schreiner and Douglas Moo, in their argument for this being water baptism, they're saying that water baptism is shorthand. It's like saying um, this, is, this, this baptism, this water baptism is representative of a real reality. So they're not saying, Douglas Moo and Thomas Schreiner, This is not everyone that believes that this is water baptism, but these guys that have a good doctrinal reason for their own assessment to say this is water baptism, they're not saying that the water baptism saves a person. They're saying that that water baptism is a demonstration of this reality. This is not how I see it. I see Romans chapter 6 and the reference to baptism as spirit baptism into union with Christ. Now listen carefully. I see it as spirit baptism into union with Christ. It's a work that is clearly and only done by God. This takes place at the moment a person repents of their sin and trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior. In other words, there are no believers floating around, like true, genuine believers floating around that are not united with Christ. The uniting with Christ doesn't wait until they're baptized with water. There are no believers floating around that 
are not united with Christ. If someone is genuinely saved because they've turned from their sin and turned to Christ, they are united with Christ. They've been baptized by the Spirit. Now, the difference between Stott and Schreiner, Moo and William Hendrickson's view and the one I'm presenting to you is ultimately very minor. It's ultimately very minor. They would say that Paul is referencing a water baptism as a symbolic representation of the conversion that happens spiritually. This is not heretical. This is just different. I would say that Paul is simply referring to the spiritual reality, the process that we're calling spirit baptism, that all believers are baptized by the Spirit upon repentance from sin and faith in Christ. And that water baptism does in fact picture that reality. You see the difference? It's only slight. It's only slight. The doctrinal danger in this text about misunderstanding it to be water baptism is not what Douglas Moo and Thomas Schreiner are saying. The doctrinal danger is when someone interprets water baptism as the potential of producing the reality that is spoken of here. That, we believe, would be contrary to God's Gospel and Paul's declaration of God's Gospel. Let's look at one illustration of it to help us drive that point home. The doctrinal danger is if a person thinks that water baptism produces the reality of union with Christ. Not that water baptism is referenced in Romans 6. So take a look, please, at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We can part company as far as agreeing on specifics with certain people, but we don't have to part fellowship with them Where we would part fellowship, spiritual gospel fellowship, is if someone says the water baptism is what produces or is necessary to produce this end. We we, we clear on this? All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is a very clear articulation of the fact that baptism is not necessary to accomplish salvation. I'm trying to be very specific in my wording. Baptism is necessary. For obedience. Baptism is obedience. To not be baptized as a believer is not a good place to be. Because you're saying, I know God, you call for it. I'm just not willing to do it. I'm afraid of water. I'm afraid of being in front of people. Whatever your case may be. That's an issue of obedience. However, if, if you... Th- I just lost my train of thought. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14. Take a look, please. I thank God that I baptized none of you. Stop right there. I thank God that I baptized none of you. Let's just ask a theoretical question. If baptism is necessary for salvation, could he, in good conscience, write that? I don't think he could. He then goes on to say, well, I, well, actually, I did baptize some of you. I baptized Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that they were baptized in my name. I did also you know, the, the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't, I don't remember. I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to what? 
If baptism is necessary for salvation, that would just be a weird statement. Now, not only would it be weird, when we understand the doctrine of inspiration, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed. Theopneustos. God breathed. It would be ultra confusing if God says baptism is necessary to produce salvation, but yet God didn't send me to baptize. That would make absolutely no sense. And you and I both know that God is not confused. Right? The confusion, when there is some, lies here, not there. It lies here, not here. Some things are confusing. It just means that I'm confused. And I need to figure out how not to be confused. What does the Scripture say? How do we make sense of it? He says, uh, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of His power. What did He send Him to do? To give the Gospel. Why? Because the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This is good news, ladies and gentlemen. So, he's talking in Romans chapter 6 about our union with Christ. I think that's very clear. We made that point, I think, clearly. And the way that we come into that union with Christ is by some type of baptism. And I would submit to you, it's not through water baptism. It's through spirit baptism. And I would say that water baptism then pictures that spirit baptism. Are we clear? I think think that everyone's rattling their brains with me. All right. I think we're good. So, that leads us to our first main point, and it's really the only main point that we're going to be able to spend time on this morning. Spirit baptism results in union with Jesus Christ. Now, I just made the point, but now we're going to talk about the implications of that point. And I will tell you this, I can say this without fear of you thinking I'm patting myself on the back, because we're just going to read Scripture. This is thrilling Like, this is the best substantive message that you could get today. And I'm not, because I'm going to read you God's Word. This is glorious. Spirit baptism results in union with with Christ. So we already talked about Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 that says, we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into His death. Now, turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. This concept of union with Christ is food for our spiritual soul. It frees us from bondage to having good and bad days spiritually. You've had good and bad spiritual days, haven't you? Days you you got in the Word in the morning and you prayed and you... You sensed the Lord's work in your life and you you sensed you were filled with the Spirit and when someone did something kind of not pleasant, uh, love came out instead of your nastiness. You've had those days, right? It's like, oh Lord, you're so good to me. Thank you. And you've had other days where maybe you 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 read your Bible and you said some prayers, but you're kind of you. And let's just admit it. You're kind of not that great. There are seven sinners in my household. When I'm not, when I'm not doing so great, one of them is going to tell me about it. 
Happened to me a couple times yesterday. Dad, why, you know, why are you acting like that? Because I wanted it, because, I, because it was right for me. To... No, it's a little bit of rebu- a rebuke to the heart when done correctly. It's like, all right. When, when, it's, when you are you, not good things. It's beautiful music. Um, not good things come out, right? The, the glory of our union with Christ and what we're about to understand as we look at numerous texts of Scripture in, re, in, in regard to it, what we'll understand is when I have a good spiritual day or a bad spiritual day, this doesn't change my standing with God. It's like on a bad spiritual day, God's not looking down from heaven and said, I can't wait to, to, to rain down lightning on you. I can't wait to hit you over the head with a two-by-four. And, and so, so many people that are in Christendom think of God in these terms. And it's, it's really damaging. It's damaging to them their own spiritual progress. And it's damaging to their view of who God is. And a, a firm understanding of our union with Christ from beginning to end alleviates a lot of unnecessary turmoil. So, with that being said, Ephesians 1 and verse 4. Even as He chose us, will you say the next two words with me? In Him. When? When did He choose us in Him? Say it with me. Before the foundation of the world. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Verse 6, To the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us, will you say this with me? In the Beloved. God accepted us in the Beloved. Our acceptance is not in us. Our acceptance is because we have been placed into Christ, the Beloved One, God's own Beloved Son. I can stand one day before God, and this this blows our minds, and I can stand there confidently. I can stand there confidently, not because I am spectacular, but because my confidence is in the fact that I am in Christ. I'm robed in His righteousness. I was in Christ when He was crucified. I was in Christ when He was buried in that tomb. I was in Christ when He rose again. In Christ. Everything about me is true because of my relationship, my union with Christ. And it started before the foundation of the the world. And it continues. Right now, I am accepted because of my union with Christ. Look at verse 7. In Him... We have redemption. My sins have been forgiven through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. It's because I'm in Him that my sins are forgiven and righteousness has been granted. It's because I'm in Him. In chapter 6 of Romans, we read this earlier. In verse 6, it says this, We know, we know, this is not a, a, a hypothetical, we know that our old self was crucified with Him. We're placed in Him. Our old man is dead in Him. It's my position in Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Wish we had time to read all of it. We're going to get the, the clincher at the end, verses 29 through 31. He's telling us about the gospel that he preached. Not everyone likes that gospel. Some people, are, it's a stumbling block. To others, they call it foolishness. To us simpletons, we just rejoice in the gospel. You're a simpleton with me, right? Yeah? Because he's wise. And he's so infinitely wise, everything else pales into insignificance. I can feel and know that I am nothing. Because he's everything. And because of his glorious kindness, I have become everything in him. Not in me. In him. So he concludes in this section, he says in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because you are, say it with me, in Christ Jesus. Because you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because I am in Christ Jesus, I know I'm redeemed. Hmm. I know I'll be glorified. Yes. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. But I know that I have been declared holy. Sanctified. Sanctified not here. Sanctified in Him. Now in the process of this, this life, we want that reality of that sanctification to come out in our daily lives. We want our family to see the holiness of God in our lives. We want our church family to see the holiness of God in our lives. We want our neighbors to see the holiness of God coming out in our lives. We want all of this to take place. But we can stand confidently because I'm in Christ. I have been declared holy. It's it's done. It's done. Let's go a little further, please. Colossians chapter 2. So we're talking right now, spirit baptism results in union with Christ. And we're talking about the implications of being united with Christ. Before the foundation of the earth, I was joined with Christ. God chose me. He's accepted me. I've, my sins have been forgiven. Right now, God is at work within me. He's crucified the old man. It's, it's done. I've been declared righteous. I've been declared redeemed. I've been declared sanctified. Here in Colossians chapter 2, look at verses 9 and 10. Speaking about the Lord Jesus and the implications that it has in our lives. For in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now that is a wonderful thing to to consider and, and you could spend the rest of your life trying to figure out all how that works. Now we understand that He's the God-man, that, that, that He's in the Father, that the Father's in Him, and that the Spirit's in... You know, we, we understand that the, tr- the triune God, we understand what we understand. We don't understand all of it yet. That day will come. We'll be in the presence of the Lord. We'll, we'll know Him as we're known by Him. Looking forward to that day. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 11. And you have been filled, I prefer, you have been made complete in Him. Because that's how the, the, the Greek actually reads it. You have been made complete in Him. You, believer in Jesus Christ, have been made complete. You're fully mature. Wait a second. No, I have so so much maturity to do. Yes, you do. But in Christ, you're fully mature. It's beautiful because you're united with Christ through spirit baptism. 
This is, this is why it's, it undergirds everything that Paul is trying to tell the, the Roman church and us about dealing with the mastery of sin in our lives. Sin wants to rule over us. Oh, but, but sin's mastery has, has ended. You're no longer under sin. That's Okay, that's good. Your old man that used to uh, just rule over you, he, he's been crucified. Oh, this is good. You've been united together with Christ. Okay, that's good. And, and because you're in Christ, you have confidence, confidence in the future, but also confidence right now. Not confident because you went to church today. Oh, I feel really good when I come to church. Okay. I'll take that as a, a good thing. I want you to come. You should come. I want to want to come. I should come. But I don't come so that I'll feel better. I come, first of all, because God tells me to. And secondly, because that's how I know him better. He, he teaches us. Even if you're covering truth that you are familiar with, he's teaching us. All right, we have been made complete in him. Take a look now at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What's really cool is that this in Christ union, nothing dissolves. Nothing dissolves this in Christ union. Not even death dissolves our union with Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14 and following. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Listen carefully. Actually, don't listen. Let's read it together. The very last line of verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. Death doesn't even dissolve this union. Before the foundation of the earth, we were in Him. While we walk on the earth, we're in Him. When our bodies are in the ground, we're in Him. Look a little further, please, at uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Actually, uh, Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 8 instead. While you're turning to Romans chapter 8, I'll remind you of verses that we've already read and one that we haven't. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5 says this, We shall certainly, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So there's, there's union before, during, when our bodies are in the ground, and in our resurrection. United together in a resurrection like His. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, Paul tells us about this. Our eternal resurrection is assured because of our union with Christ. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall... What was it, that word again? All be made alive. All who? 
all who know Christ as Savior. In the beginning of the chapter, he says, uh, you've heard the gospel. It was delivered to you. Stand fast in the gospel. Hold, cling to the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for sinners like us, according to the Scriptures. That Christ was buried, according to the Scriptures. That Christ was raised, according to the Scriptures. All of those who are in Christ shall be made alive. We're in Romans chapter 8. At least I hope you're there. Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now we're going to talk just for a moment about glorification. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also, what does it say? Be glorified what? With Him. him. Glorified with Him. Because we're in Him, we're glorified with Him. Our union with Christ from before the foundation of the earth into eternity. Union with Christ is the basis of our eternal hope. Now you may not like some of the words that are chosen by John Murray in this next statement, but listen anyway. Union with Christ embraces the wide span of salvation from its ultimate source in the eternal election of God to its final fruition in the glorification of the elect. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption, both in its accomplishment and in its application. Being in Christ is at the heart of true biblical Christianity. And we are united with Christ through baptism. Spirit baptism. Who does the work of spirit baptism? Well, of course I do, because I made the decision to blah, 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 blah. What are you trying to accomplish here? Whose glory are you seeking right now? Spirit baptism is accomplished by the Spirit. The spiritual gifts are accomplished by the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is accomplished by the Spirit. Do we follow the trend here? The trend is God will be glorified in His working in His people. It's not us. It's not about us. It's about Him from beginning to eternity. This is what it's all about. The Scriptures constantly point us to God's glorious work. With these essential concepts understood, we realize that our glory, our boast, our rejoicing is that we are eternally joined to Jesus Christ. In Him during His life, in Him during His death, in Him during His burial, in Him during His resurrection, in Him in His ascension into glory, in Him, in His session at the right hand of the Father, in Him, in His return one day, in Him, throughout the kingdom, in Him, throughout eternity, in Him, in Him, in Him. We are eternally benefited by this union with Christ. So, it comes through spirit baptism. Now, as we just conclude in just, I'd say about three more minutes, 
Don't hold me to it. Like, don't leave if, if I'm not done in three minutes. If you get up and walk, I'll, I'll, I might be disappointed. Union with Christ results in new life. Now, this is going to be next week's topic, but we're going to taste it for just a moment. Union with Christ results in new life. That's what Romans 6.4 is talking about. We, too, might walk in newness of life. Not only does God break the terror reign of sin in the life of the believer, God gives new affections, new desires, new capacities, new power, and new patterns. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 5. I want for us to notice verses 14-17 through 17, where Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us. In the New King James, I think it says compels us. In the King James, I think it says constrains us. For the love of Christ controls us, compels us, constrains us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. That's the Lord Jesus. Therefore, all believers in Christ have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sakes died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Ooh. That'll preach in the 21st century. Year 2020. We don't regard you based upon your skin color. We don't regard you based upon your economic status, your intellectual capacity, or your social um, jocularity. We regard no man according to the flesh. Why? Because there's only one that matters. And when we're united together with him, all those other things are of no importance to us. Middle of verse 16. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come because we've been constrained, controlled by God. The love of Christ controls us. We want to serve Him and serve others. It's not about what they look like, what they smell like, what they sound like, what they act like. We want to serve. Why? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's given to us. He's given us a new life. It's, it's depicted in the life of the Thessalonian believers. Listen to this. It'll be on the screens to my left and right. Not only as, um, has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, Thessalonian church, so that we need not say anything. For they, the people that come in contact with, I come in contact with everywhere I go, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you, say it with me, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Listen, the, their whole lives changed. They used to serve these things and now they serve this One. 
the living and true God. And not only have they stopped serving and worshiping these things and have started to serve and worship God, they're waiting for Him. Their affections, their thirsts, their hungers are in righteousness rather than paganism. Him and and eternity rather than me and the world. How'd this happen? Well, the Gospel came in. The Gospel came in and it changed their lives and it changed their hungers and thirsts. New affections. It is this newness of life that we'll discuss next week during our study. Are you stuck in habit patterns that you just can't seem to break? Are you struggling to establish new patterns? I want to give you one main reason for that struggle and two possibilities for consideration. The reason for the struggle, this is a fact, the reason for the struggle is you're trying to fix yourself with your own power. Trying to fix yourself with your own power. If you're struggling to establish new affections and new patterns, it's because you're trying to do it. It'll never work. That's your main problem. Here are some two possible conclusions. You are not surrendering your will to the Almighty God who has saved you. You are not truly arriving at a place where you truly say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's one possibility. A second possibility is you have not experienced the benefits of being united with Christ. In other words, you have not turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ to save you. Because when you do, He not only forgives your sin and provides eternal righteousness that makes you fit for heaven, but He also with that breaks the rulership of sin in your life. And He provides new life that results in new desires and new patterns. So, Christian, are you struggling? If you are, it's, don't point that way for your problem. Don't point that way for your problem. Point this way. Now, don't you point at me. I have plenty of reasons to point at myself. Point, point at yourself. Like I have to point at myself. I am not surrendering. When I'm surrendered, the new life always, always comes out. God is failure proof. When you sin, you know it's not because He didn't do His job. It's because you have not come underneath the power of the Spirit. 
We're no longer under the law. We're no longer under sin. We are under grace. And that that grace is not just a nebulous force. The grace of God comes primarily through a person. And that person is the Spirit of God who empowers us. And every time I'm surrendered to the Spirit of God, only fruitfulness, God's fruit, comes out. So Christian, if you're struggling, it means you're not coming underneath that one. Perhaps your struggle is much more persistent than that that I'm describing. Maybe you have not had the power of sin broken. And for that, you go to the Lord and say, Lord, is there something wrong? Show me. Show me. And you know what he'll do? He'll show you. Let's pray together. Father, help us to worship you and to be transformed by you. We want these new passions. We want these new desires. And we want these new patterns to be demonstrated by your power. We want the world to see your gospel in us. And we want our families to see your gospel in us. For your glory and their good. In Jesus' name, amen.